HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of great other shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. In the studio with me today for my second episode is Tony Butler, the executive director of St. John's Bread and Life. Bread and Life is located in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and is one of the largest soup kitchens, food pantries, and social services providers in the New York City area. They serve about 2,500 hot meals daily to hungry New Yorkers and offer an incredibly long list of other amazing services. Tony, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, regular listeners to Heritage Radio may already know a little bit about you. Mm. You've been on a number of other programs. Um, but for my listeners, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, as, as you mentioned, excuse me. <coughs> I'm Anthony Butler, Tony Butler, the executive director of St. John's Bread and Life. And what I do is run a very large and sadly needed emergency feeding program. Um, we're actually above those stats you mentioned. We're almost at 3,000 meals a day, oh, wow. um, providing hot meals, um, a food pantry. We have a mobile soup kitchen. And on top of meeting the, the hunger needs in New York City, um, which right now one in five New Yorkers uses emergency food programs like us, 20% of the city, about 1.8 million, and one in four children use it. Um, we have an, a, range of, uh, a range of services. We help people sign up for food stamps. We have a large tax program, provide clothes for people. We have a large immigration program. We have medical services on site. Um, we have a uh, unique kind of initiative um, with uh, St. John's University called Project ID, where we help people get birth certificates, non-driver's IDs, and the like, all with the, the kind of intent of both preventing their poverty, if you will, from getting worse and also helping lifting, lifting them out of poverty. 
Right. I, you know, I have to say the, the last time I was at Bread and Life, I was an incredibly impressed by all of the things that you guys offer, that it wasn't just, you weren't just offering a hot meal twice right. a day. Right. You weren't just offering a food pantry, but mm-hmm. you were offering legal services and yeah. cooking classes and all these all other things to, to really help people, um, you know, get, get on or stay mm-hmm. on their feet. Um, you know, the way that we think about it. And I, I like the way that you address that, that it's, that it's sadly needed. Yeah. Um, you know, other, other folks that I know, um, and Cansfeld at the, Greenpoint Reformed yeah. Church, where they also run yeah. a soup yeah. kitchen and pantry that's somewhat somewhat smaller, but still you know growing every year. Right. Sadly, yep. um, likes to talk about that you know in an ideal world the soup kitchen would be out of business. Exactly, exactly. Um, how did you come to be the executive director at Bread and Life? Have you always worked in social services? I've worked in human services, social services. My my I come out of a religious background. Um, I was a Franciscan brother for ten years, um, and always been drawn to that kind of. Um, working to use my skills to assist folks who had someone who's less than me. Um, though this job, kind of funny, my wife sent my resume in. And I got a call, and I'm like, who are you? And this was in the days before you had, you know, like Idealist and LinkedIn and all that. So I thought, maybe I sent a resume I don't remember. And so I'm like just mumbling and trying to fake it. And um, and it's turned into this job. Oh, um, that's really... That's amazing. So yeah. she so she sent in your in your she, resume she, without knowing. Without she she saw an ad in some newspaper and sent it in. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you grew up, uh, I believe, near outside Albany. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Is that where you were? Where you were a Franciscan brother? Oh, I was a Franciscan brother in Albany, but also I worked in North Carolina. <clears throat> I uh, worked at Covenant House in New York. Um, worked in Massachusetts, um, at, uh, Holyoke, Massachusetts, outside of Springfield. So kind of worked up and down the, the East Coast. Got it. And and was that work also in social? <clears throat> It all was in social. I mean, I started my work um, working kind of with, uh, well, not kind of, but with disabled um, and homeless Vietnam vets, developing a program um, in uh, Chicopee, Massachusetts, um, and then moved down to North Carolina, where actually that's the first time I ever did emergency food. I ran, besides working in a parish, I ran a, a three-county um, uh, ecumenical uh, group uh, that called ACTS that would help uh, folks um, with food and, and, and immediate assistance, but it was this different world. We, we gave out live pigs. We gave out firewood. That was during um, the early 80s when Ronald Reagan had the amnesty program for um, immigrants, and right. most of these were still, it was just real tobacco country. In fact, I crowned a Miss Tobacco one year. It was, it was the honor to go to the, that was the event of the year was the, his whole tobacco fair. I learned tobacco is like wine, except it's not healthy, but it's just as geeky as wine. Um, and um, but we were we did a lot of work around immigration, which really got me kind of interested um, and um, and knowledgeable on immigration. Then worked at Covenant House, um, met my wife. I was her boss for about three days. That really failed, but the, the marriage has been for twenty four years been good. So do you still uh, work together? Uh, no, only only when I'm cleaning and she's telling me what to do around the house. But, huh? <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, so that and that that led me here. I prior to this job, I'd worked 14 years um, helping develop a home a housing for the homeless mentally ill, um, New York, New York housing um, for for deinstitutionalized folks uh, here in Brooklyn. So I've been working here in Brooklyn for oh, I think about 26, 27 years now. Quite a, quite a lot of changes. Yeah, in, just uh, a few, just a in, few in the borough and in the city as a whole. Um, I. I'm really struck by what you said about handing out pigs and firewood uh, as something to, uh, you know, give people in, in yeah. a sort of food shed or right. in a food yeah. in a food way. Is there anything here at Bread and Life now in Brooklyn that you give out that you feel is specific to uh, to an urban life? 
Well, I think that the urban life that's, that's kind of developed over the last um, well, probably 10 years in terms of this real sustainably grown, locally grown produce, it's really become much more part of urban life, surprisingly, than it is of rural life. That's um, a very good point. You know, when I go to see my, my family who still live upstate, <clears throat> most are buying kind of mass-produced ConAgra kind of food in the grocery stores. I mean, it's changing a bit, but you see a lot, a lot less sustainably and organic in that kind of world. Um, grown unless you go to very specialty places. Where here you see it, even in, I mean, there's a bodega on my block that has an organic section. You know? um, so I th- I see, I've seen that big change. And I've seen the kind of conversation around food that's happened here in Brooklyn. I mean, that's one of the reasons probably I've, did, I've done some of these radio shows and gotten involved with this community, that the conversation around food that's, I think, somewhat different than the kind of national conversation. Because I think that the popular national conversation around food is still very competitive. Competitive or instructional. I mean, um, they're teaching how to make something. Or it's this kind of iron chef or, you know, sure. yelling. It's, a, it's, you know, food versus food kind of merged with sports. Which I, where I see the, a lot of the food movement here, particularly in Brooklyn, which I think has led the way in a lot of it, is around that com- people coming together. And using food, um, coming together around good food and also recognizing that their eating choices have um, impacts and consequences to a larger community. Right. So <clears throat> people do, I think, um, here, and, and I, I see what you're saying mm. about the, the national food conversation yeah. being about this sort of contest idea. Yeah. And, and I see it, too, when, I, you know, when I've traveled um, out, outside of New York City. You do go to large supermarket chains and, you know, some of them do have organic stuff, but yeah. by and large, you are seeing sort right. of larger, um, more industrialized right. food and, and here in the city. And I, I would guess that some of that is due to the distribution network that yes. exists in New right. York City, right. where if you already have an or- organics company distributing to a store like ours, like the Brooklyn Kitchen or, right. or exactly. a Whole Foods, yeah. they can also stop at the bodega. Right. It's very easy. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't take another truck I'm, trip or any of those we've things. We've benefited um, from that from Bread and Life. I mean, we spend about, between spending and donating, probably around a million dollars a year on food. And I'm running right now about 200,000 of uh, locally grown and sustainably grown um, uh, mostly New York State or the kind of tri-state, but we're able to benefit from uh, ex-farmer coming to Union Square. He doesn't mind dropping off a little extra to us, right? Or that kind of thing, or the or the uh, the Green Market and Grand Army Plaza, or something like that. And then, do you then um, pass through that information to the people who are using your services, who are getting the, that produce? They also understand that that's from New York. We do. We pass that through. We pass it through um, in cooking too, um, to try to normalize it. That this stuff is just not, you know, the odd, weird, you know, winter green. Because um, right. there's, there's a lot of um, kind of a knowledge lack or a knowledge deficit in terms of a lot of particularly produce and what to do with it. Sure. I mean, I think a, a lot of the produce, um, especially in the local movement, there's, there is a certain celebration of the odd. Yes, right? there so, is. So there, there's celebration of interesting heritage varietals, yeah. which, of course, are important to grow for, all, for a whole right. host of right. reasons. But then, you know, that... That sounds like, I mean, that presents a difficulty for the farmer trying to sell it even at the market. And I'm yeah. sure in your in your market and the people who, help, who you're helping, you know, showing them an oddly colored or oddly shaped yeah. potato exactly. makes it even harder. It does. I mean, we had these carrots come in and we had to, the staff took them home and cooked them and figure out what to do. We had no idea. They were just these. They were actually quite good, but no one knew exactly how to how to use them. Yeah. I mean, I think and, and that's great because then you're having your staff who can then mm. talk to right. the people who are using the services yeah. Yeah. about what to do with these great carrots. I mean, you know, it, it's it's interesting 
to to discover the the correlation. I mean, we do the same thing. Yeah. My staff right. takes home the <laughs> vegetables that come through the door, and yeah. we don't know what a squash tastes like that we've brought in. Right. There's so many varieties. We take them home, or we test them out in in the in the mm-hmm. shop and and figure it out, and then we talk to our customers about it. Same same sort of thing. Um, in your time at Bread and Life, what do you think are some of your greatest successes? Um, I think really creating a sense of community around food that that's become and shifting at least in our little control we're doing a, depending on the year between 800,000 and a million meals a year really changing at least in our local little world the diet of folks exposing them to new foods seeing that these foods are not this kind of I may say this on the radio they're not this kind of yuppie hipster kind of food but these are normative that people can eat them that are accessible to everyone and you can bring your own kind of cultural flavor to it, if you'll pardon the pun, to different things um, and, and modify them. And so that's been very excited, exciting. Um, and really, to I think we've done some work in moving the kind of uh, emergency food conversation away from just <clears throat> kind of product and quantity, and here's, you know, 15 cans of ravioli or something like that, and a bag of beans, to that food is kind of fundamental to what we do and it's not just the lack of nutrition that's hurting people but it's the lack of commonality it's the lack of coming together and so we've been able to address that um, and with that bring in some of this kind of food world into that and show i remember uh, early on when i did one of these radio shows um it wasn't a radio show it was an event here at roberta's and i spoke for a few minutes and i challenged a lot of restaurateurs to say look at you provide very good food to people with means what about people without means they didn't throw me out they actually bought me a drink and the conversation started right. and so i'm very proud of that that um the notion that uh, hunger is a communal problem and so we need to bring the community together to deal with it and i think that the 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 way that you've been able to at least the way that i saw mm-hmm. the the food pantry side mm-hmm. of things operating where the people who are coming and using that service get a choice what choice and i and i think that um is really important and really valuable in terms of making it clear that it's not just a handout. Right. You're not handing someone a bag of food and saying, this is what I can give you exactly. and this is what, you know, you'll be able to live on yeah. this, but you're allowing people, and, and the system at Bread and Life, for anyone who has not seen it, is really, it, the it's incredible and it is really technologically savvy right. and the clients come in yeah. and they can choose from a whole... Well, off a touch list. screen for the listeners who don't know, we have a digital food pantry because I want to give people choice, but I also want to understand how people are using food. Because I have an obligation to be a good steward of the the funds and resources that are that are given to Bread and Life, and so folks, it's kind of a debit system where they get a certain amount of points and order off a touchscreen. Kind of do the Whole Foods thing upside down. That the more ex- the more nutritious is cheaper, the less nutritious is more expensive. The Whole Foods has been a very good supporter of us, so I don't want to um, disparage them. But but that notion um, and allow people to have choice because food you need to have choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there things that you have? Um, I guess brought in or, or that have been donated that have um, been very popular with your with the with the clients or customers. I don't know how you describe them. Uh, we actually call them guests. Yes, um, um, that, that you wouldn't have expected that to be to be a popular item. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking about is you know at the at the Brooklyn Kitchen because I'm mm-hmm. now seeing so right, many right. so many correlations mm-hmm. here. Um, we sell a lot of kimchi. Yeah, but, we, but we're not selling it to. Korean folks, right? You know, and that is a product we sell a lot of, and we brought it in because we yeah. thought it would be good to have on the shelf, yeah. and it turned out to be a hit. We uh, kimchi is actually a funny thing, though. We served kimchi, we didn't know what to do with it, so we served it with sausages because we thought sauerkraut. And so, because when Guga Muga, the, the last time when it sort of failed on the bad weather, right? We got tons of stuff. 
we went and rescued a bunch of food. So that, that is an interesting. That's one of them. I think also the winter greens, because uh, through an educative process, people didn't understand that you could eat good greens in the winter. And now they're asking. We don't get enough of them. Hmm. So, um, so and, kale is, has become popular yeah, across the board. And the small potatoes. The kind of colored different small potatoes, um, which first folks didn't even know. They wouldn't eat. We served them in the soup kitchen. They didn't know what these, what's this purple thing. And then um, that, that's changed. They really like it. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, and so you're running a location in Brooklyn. Right. Um, and that is, that is the home base. And then you have a mobile soup kitchen yes. that is in, built, built on, a, on a truck platform. Right. And goes out uh, to Queens. Does that go to the same place all the time? It goes to the same place every day. Um, so, uh, you know, it does two meals a day, five days a week. So every, and I can't remember the exact schedule, but every Monday morning it would be at the same place. Um, we, we serve Queens. Um, in Jackson Heights and Far Rockaway, we serve Brownsville, um, we serve Williamsburg, um, East New York, um, and uh, Williamsburg. Uh, several of our sites are day labor sites. Um, and one of the interesting sites, uh, listeners may not know, is there's a large uh, f- uh, women day labor population that we serve on Division Street. Um, an interesting mix of uh, um, new Polish immigrants and women from um, Central America who are essentially, they're not even Spanish-speaking, they're Quechuan-speaking. Fine. And there are these, um, and I asked, I remember asking one of the women, because she, I said, you speak English fairly well, and you don't speak Spanish. She go, she told me that the, the men spoke Spanish because they go into the towns. But these women are from the rural parts, and they speak their native tongue. And, and she, so there's no need to speak Spanish. No, so she learned English. And I swear she walked from Peru to here. But, right, um, <laughs> right. Huh, that's very interesting. And, and what are, I mean, day laborers in terms of being picked up on the street corner the way they do for construction? Exactly. That sort of Most thing? of them are the, doing the clean, clean out construction and things like that. Yeah. Some um, in the summer months, some uh, landscaping and, and work like that. And our mobile soup kitchen tries to replicate the services we have at Bread and Life because we also have an office in the back, fax capability, um, the Wi-Fi our satellite hookup so we can connect with our database. Um, obviously, it's a different world, I mean, different kind of environment to work on if it's rainy and snowing. Um, but both provide the food and connect people with services, so maybe they don't need our food as much. Our mobile soup kitchen was very busy during Sandy. We were out there the day of the storm and for a year afterwards, um, along with providing our regular mobile services. Wow, um, so, so running, yeah. running a lot of meals. In fact, well. it was my old one, which I, I think Sandy sort of destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, mm. you, you guys are really putting it to incredibly heavy use, so I would imagine yeah. that, you know, yeah. it's something that yeah. takes a lot of wear and tear. Um, I think we're going to take a short break uh, and hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Bread and Life and some other things that are going on in the city. magic wand tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious the planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us both our bodies and our our world but man i do not have a magic wand what i do have is you and this radio station the heritage radio network that's what we're here to do we're here to help 
lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the planet's healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen here in Williamsburg. And my guest today, if you're just joining us, is Anthony Butler, who's the executive director of St. John's Bread and Life here in Brooklyn. Um, I recently uh, read about a school bus in Boston that's been converted into a mobile farm stand. Yes. And they bring it into underserved neighborhoods. Is that something that uh, you've considered at all with Bread and Life to do something like that? We have considered. I've not figured out the logistics of it. Um, and the funding and, and the practicality of it. I think it's a great idea. Um, part of me would rather, um, and the city was toying with us for a while ago, but it, it's dwindled a bit, is figure how we could partner with extant stores hmm. who kind of, you know, if you could underwrite or take care of their produce. Right, kind yeah, of, I know there was a green market program yeah. some years ago to try and uh, put a cooler of, of fresh yeah. green market produce right. into bodegas. It was, I mean, it's, it's a way to address the kind of food desert. So that I think that conversation shifted a bit. Um, there, there is access, um, and we do. I mean, we're, we're part of a CSA at Bread and Life, and we so. Um, and I think there's some of the, the, that kind of fresh produce stuff can happen on kind of physical sites, um, and it's also that there are. New York's much just much more denser denser than Boston. People have much better transportation opportunities and like that. So yeah, and one of the things that I that seemed to me that might be difficult um, because of the density mm-hmm. would be that you just wouldn't be able to hold enough no. produce. I mean, you could stop in one place and, and it would just dis- everything would yeah, disappear, right. and then you'd have to sort of start over again. And a mobile option, any mobile option, is the most expensive um, in terms of staffing, in terms of fuel, in terms of insurance and all that, it is the most exciting. I mean, even our mobile soup kitchen is probably our highest price per meal because of delivering it. Right. Right. Um, how do you determine the sites where the mobile kitchen goes and stops? Um, it's done by my staff. Actually, I really take the recommendation. Um, they've kind of had the word on the street. We do it by kind of, uh, people voting with their feet. If numbers start dwindling at a certain site, we'll start looking for another one. We've never had problems finding one. Right. You have, some, you, have to, you, know, you have to be sensitive to the community when you're going to park there, clean up and all that. But, yeah. Sure. Um, so in New York this week, uh, Pope Francis yeah. is arriving. He's right. in Washington today yeah. um, meeting with the president. And uh, I, I send out a, a questionnaire um, to every, all of my guests before the show. And one of my questions is, if you could have dinner with anyone, yeah. who would it be? And your answer was the Pope. Yeah. Um, what, would you, uh, what would you imagine a dinner with the Pope to be like, what would you what would you want to talk to him about? I'd want to talk to him about how he's been able to take kind of ancient and traditional church teaching and 
maybe not reframe it, but restate it in a way. First of all, it's it's attractive to many people, and he's reframed it that it's not a series of kind of dogmas, rules, but that it's about interconnectivity. I mean, his great line from his newest encyclical on um, in global warming and creation, Laudate Si, he talks about it's not us in nature, it is all creation, and we are part of creation. Sure. So I thought, what a different, and I've never heard that, you know, the church talk about that viewing as that, that we are part of creation as a hierarchy and different roles in creation, but it, it's not something external to us. Yeah, I found that, that encyclical. I mean, I, I'm not Catholic. Um, I grew up Jewish. Yeah. Uh, today's Yom Kippur, right. but, I'm, but right. I'm not fasting. I don't, you know, I don't really ascribe to it anymore. But I found that encyclical about climate change fascinating yeah. because I don't remember a time, at least in my memory, um, that a pontiff took a position yeah. on something like climate change, which I feel like is usually cast as a corporate or political right, right. issue, um, and one that is, you know, it's about what the companies are doing and mm-hmm. what the governments yeah. are doing. And so for him to take that position, I think, is really... It hasn't been done really since the late 19th century when Leo X talked about labor unions. Um, there was a document on, on labor mm. and, and the rights of unions and the rights of people to control, to, to value their own kind of labor... And they have a right to be paid justly for it and rules sure. and stuff. But no, it's, it's, a, it's a rare thing. Um, I, and it shouldn't be. The church is always supposed to have been in the marketplace. Right. Um, it's, it's a church that's always been kind of incarnational. And, and even if you're Catholic, I mean, we have smoke and things and statues. It's a very physical church. Um, so there's no reason it shouldn't be in this very physical world and talking about it and bringing it. And that's, I think, what Francis is doing a very good job even coming here. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's... It's progressive. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. is. It's, it's, it's a progressive, progressive position yeah. to yeah. take. Um, so, if you were going to have the Pope over for dinner, yeah. what would you serve? I heard he likes chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so I would, I would find, I would scout that out first. Yeah. And probably some Argentinian food, you know, to make him, make right. him feel comfortable. Right. Um, nothing too grand, but, um, but I think I would invite the right people because I, th- I have a sense he's a guy who likes to talk in a dinner conversation. So I would, I personally like to arrange dinner parties. I've, my family teases me that I serve in courses whenever I have a family gathering because it forces people to sit and talk and drink and carry on conversations and discuss things as opposed to just eating and running. That's that is a that's a really a really good point, and I'm yeah. going to take that and I'm going to I'm going to use that especially with my I have a I have a six year old yeah. who, you know, doesn't like to sit at the table no. but really loves to talk. Right. And so I think that that could really help. We tend to serve things family style right, right. once at yeah. our house because yeah. sometimes it's easier. But I, I really like that idea of of serving in courses to yeah. force the conversation. I started serving chocolate sorbet for the little kids and they loved it. If you serve sorbet between the meals and they have ice cream in between the meals, then they think it's a really cool. But I would do if you know if I had that real luxury and that real honor to have dinner with the Pope to to have that to just I was amazed I was at a, a, a event at Roberta's um, and um, Carlo what's his last name one of the founders of Slow Food he was there oh, Petrini Petrini and and Alice Waters um, was there and they were talking about and Carlo was going on through translation um, talking about first of all he had a he had a call he's walking down the street in Italy he gets this call and he hears. He decides to answer. He's, he doesn't recognize the number. And he answers it and realizes as he's listening to this very heavily um, accented Italian that it's the Pope calling him because Carlo had sent him his book. And he wanted to call him and say, thank you. I really like the idea of sustainable. And they talk for like 20 minutes walking down the street. So Carlo's telling this story. And I'm looking at all you know these 30-somethings out here at this, this nice little event. And Carlo's essentially talking about the Catholic social teaching. And everyone's listening to it. 
So that that's such a powerful thing if it can be articulated in the right way. And, he, and this was being articulated, excuse me, articulated around food and labor and what it takes to produce food and what food does or does not do to the environment, how it can be toxic to the environment. I mean, not the food itself, but you know, the production of food and um, and talking about all that and really creating a very interesting conversation that's not being done in our political world. Our political world is calling each other names. Right. And, and not talking about coming together. No. And, and food, really. And, and having disagreements. I mean, the Pope said that just, I, it was a conversation when he was in Cuba, and he talked about, we all have disagreements. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's some of the fun, right, of a yeah. dinner party. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I will be, I'll be visiting my in-laws uh, mm-hmm. this weekend, and, yeah. and, and you know, I, my father-in-law, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this on the radio, and I don't necessarily always share the same right. political right. ideas, right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I find that to be interesting. Yeah, I it is. It be, is. You know, oh, my in-laws are very similar <laughs> um, Indiana and very Republican and uh, most of them we have very good conversations. Yeah, you know? absolutely. No, so, they, they, they you know, absolutely are. Yeah. Um, and I think that brings something forward when you have those conversations. It's actually a creative process. It can create, if, if it's reasonable people. If it's not people just trying to beat you up so they, you agree with them. But if it's really they're articulating something or they're trying to articulate something, you may agree with the underlying value. You don't agree with the expression. Frequently, that's what good political conversation is about. We both have the same values. We just don't think we should go at it the same way. Right. Absolutely. You know? Um, so I would love to um, talk about how people can get involved um, with with Bread and Life yeah. and with what you're doing. Obviously, I'm sure you have. I mean, you have a large staff, yeah. and there's funding for that. And I'm mm. sure you're always hiring for new people. Right, but right. I also under you know I know that there's a lot of volunteer yeah. as well. Uh, Brett, we have a significant. Um, we did I think over thirty thousand uh, volunteer hours last year. So we have a significant need for volunteers. Um, all that can be found on our website at www.breadandlife.org. Um, fill out our volunteer application. We do um, uh, ne- have need for funding. Um, one of the things folks may not understand is um, hunger is not really being responded to on any kind of political level. We are 91% privately funded, um, um, only about 9% government funded. And actually, most of that government funding comes from the city, hmm. the city and the state. Um, New York State and the city have done some uh, significant uh, kind of hunger relief. The feds, not at all. Um, so we have needs of that. We have needs of advocacy. We have, I, I'd love people to just uh, write me or call me um, to understand what this hunger problem is. Um, and we also have many events during the year where you can learn about us, have a good time. Um, we're going to be having several supper clubs um, coming through. Um, and so uh, visit our website, give us your email address, and we'll keep you informed. Yeah, and, and please share all of that information with me, and I can put it oh, up on, over our social media. Um, you know, I think that one one other thing that is important to me, and, you know, we talk about this, um, I, I talk about it relatively often, is, and I'm sure you do too, the idea that, you know, we talked earlier about the larger uh, sort of food landscape in this country, Mm -hmm. and people tend to really, it seems to me, think about hunger and the hungry right at the end of the year. Yeah. Around Thanksgiving and Christmas when people are getting together and around the holidays with their families to eat is when that becomes Mm -hmm. something that's present in their mind. But, you know, very clearly from from your data points and from what you see every single day, you know, it's the same on September 23rd right. as it is on yep. July 14th yep. as it is on Thanksgiving. Yeah. People are hungry. They 365 are. days a year. Um, and that, that hunger continues. And what our, what our, our kind of cultural celebrations, our national celebrations of hunger, of, of, of not hunger, but of abundance that we, that we have should obviously make us grateful and make us thankful, but we should also, it should make us not guilty, but make us responsible. 
that those who've been given much more is expected of them. And so to do that year in and year out, that um, um, there are folks who do not have enough to eat in this country. Um, there are folks, um, there's children who, who are causing deficits um, that will haunt us for forever, for their lifetimes, because they've not gotten the proper nutrition at those certain key you know, two- and three-year-old uh, points in their lives. Um, and so it, we should celebrate during these times. We should remember. We should donate. But we should also be invigorated and motivated to say, look, this is a scandal in a country that has more food than probably anybody. Sure. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's also there is, a, there is that responsibility yeah, there right. that uh, now that food in the last 10, 15 years has become something that we celebrate like right. sports, as yeah, you mentioned yeah, earlier, yeah. you know, that to me, if we have the ability to play – yeah. With our food, exactly. we absolutely have a responsibility right. to help provide for those that don't have enough to we eat. We do. We do. So. Well, um, thank you, Tony, thank for you. joining me today on Feast Your Ears. It was a real pleasure to have you. Great to be here. And you can find Feast Your Ears and lots of other great programs at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 